I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles as once again this morning we return to Acts chapter 17. And today we begin to dig into that section or portion where Paul begins to declare to those gathered at the Areopagus the basic foundational realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you turn with me, I'm going to read verses uh, 22 down to verse 34, and then we'll pray and really consider this section of Scripture. Listen as I read God's Word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found also an altar there with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who has made the world and everything that is in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others as well. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, as we take... Uh, time this morning just to consider this section of scripture where you granted Paul um, an extraordinarily unique opportunity to stand before a host of individuals who had not any knowledge of the true God and you gave him the privilege to declare your uniqueness, your person, your power, to declare also your judgment and the Son whom you sent. Lord, we just pray that as we consider these things today, that uh, we would glean from it those things that we ought. Lord, we, as we look at a very familiar section of Scripture, I pray that you will bring it with a freshness. As I seek to, to open it up and point out certain things, I pray that you would uh, assist me to bring it with uh, simplicity and clarity, and that you would be honored this day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So here, Paul, we remember he had come to this town, and as he, as he was there, he was going around. He has now left Macedonia and come down to Athens, the area that we know as Athens, Greece. Here is Athens is a, is a center of religiousness. It, you know, it, it is also the center of the sense of human intellect and wisdom. Now, realistically, the height of human intellect and wisdom is but foolishness. Man's thoughts are but futility, and man's religions and gods are false and empty. So it's a very difficult situation because most of the people he's engaging, they feel they already have the right answers. They already know better than the one they're hearing from. But they find it interesting to listen to somebody new. Oftentimes, the interest in hearing somebody new helps the personal sense of self-inflation. That dumb, that stupid, I'm, my, my opinion is better. How dare he say that? It gives us that opportunity, or them particularly, us two, uh, to mock, to belittle, to scold and say, what nonsense, what, how off he is. But no, the beauty of this, and we see this so often with Paul, no matter where he comes, no matter what the community, he has an obligation before God, a stewardship entrusted to him to speak the truth of God as God has given it whether people like it or not. And there's much that's laced in here that it's, it's not a gentle dancing on the toes of those who hold different views. It's a full-scale squashing. I mean, he, the things that he is saying about God is just crushing to their views of God. But you, you cannot be secretive with the things that God has called us to to reveal. We need to shout those things and declare those things because if you don't see them, you miss them. So the first thing I want us to take note of as we look at this section of scripture unfolding is the people he is speaking to are religious people. Now, it's rooted in a false religion, but they are religious people. Now, the King James there calls them superstitious and there is a sense in which all religion that is a false religion is a superstition it's a fear of gods that don't exist it's a desire to get benefit from gods that don't exist and I'll get it if I do that and I won't get smacked if I do this it, it, it plays on superstitions and superstitions oftentimes don't have to have solid grounds Many of the years that we spent in India, one of the peculiar things that happens is when a newborn child is born, in the Hindu context, they will often take some sort of a makeup and they'll put a black spot somewhere on the child's face. And every once in a while, this will creep even into the Christian context. It's like, well, why are you doing that? Well, we're doing that in case somebody sees how beautiful the child is and maybe gives it an evil eye or speaks a curse against it because of how beautiful. So we're putting some kind of a blemish there 
so that people won't give it an evil eye and or possibly utter a curse. If somebody gives it an evil eye, does it really affect the child? If they utter a curse, what power have their words? And worse than that, what kind of protection is a little black spot going to make to protect this child? Do you think that the person who's looking at the beautiful baby somehow, eh, not so beautiful, got a black spot on there. No, they know as well as demons could easily figure out somebody put a black spot on there so that the baby doesn't look so good. Nobody's being fooled by this. Uh, no human being, no evil spirits being fooled by this, but it's a superstition that people struggle to overcome, and you see it time and time again. Religiousness causes people to act in certain ways that sometimes they don't stop and process. Sometimes they just follow it because this is what we've always done. This is what we've always heard. This is what we've always been told. This is what we've always believed. You don't even have to show it to them. You don't have to demonstrate it to them. You don't have to prove it to them. Which there's a sense in which that seems kind of sweet. Listen, they're ready to receive and go. But the problem is once they've gripped hold of that and then someone comes in to tell them truth and they won't let go then it becomes a bit of a problem, which is why Paul didn't have that problem, nor did he have that concern. Remember, he would go into place after place, and he would prove to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He did not scold. Being an apostle, there's a sense in which, as an apostolic witness of Christ, his word was true. When he went, we saw that the church in, or the, the Jews in Berea were more noble. And why were they more noble? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And you know what Paul didn't say? How dare you search the scriptures? I'd be an apostle. How dare you mistreat me? How dare, just listen to my word. I'm an apostle. He didn't need to do that. Because he, as an apostle, his word would accord with the scriptures. Because it's one God who has given us his faithful word. And so I do urge this. Anyone who is a true preacher or true minister of God's word should be absolutely comfortable to say, search the scriptures brothers and sisters, to see whether this is true. Don't merely take my word for it. I am just a man, but God's word always proves true. Have to be ready to say that. And so the difficulty he comes in is he comes into that situation where they're, they're well-established. It says in verse 18, some were Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. They had comprehensive views of the universe and views of the afterlife and views of the purpose of this life. And what he came with, as it says very clearly in this passage, he was coming with something that was, as it says in verse 19, this new teaching that you're presenting. And so they referred to him in verse 18. It says, what does this 
babbler wish to say? Again, I think I noted last week, if I had time, hard for me to remember all the details of it, but that word there for babbler is actually a word that means seed picker. It's, 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 if you were to see a bird or say a chicken and pluck, 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 they're basically saying, you know, this guy, what he's saying, it just sounds like he took a little wisdom from this and he took a little snip from that and he took, uh, it's probably not as orderly and comprehensive and thorough as our stoicism as our Epicurean views. He just got a, a, a few snippets of seeming wisdom here and there, but there's probably nothing of substance to really hold on to. All right. So thank you for calling me a, a, a seed picker. And it's also a, a, a term that was a derogatory term that would even be used of those people that after the day of market activity had taken place, they had the responsibility of coming on through the marketplace and picking up rags, picking up refuse, picking up trash. So when they, they heard him, they found it interesting, but they didn't esteem him. Their bringing him to the Areopagus wasn't, we can't wait to hear, this is going to be great. It is, yeah, another person to act like he knows something and we get to shut him down. We get to mock this man. And indeed, when you get to the end of the chapter, what did most of them do when he spoke of the resurrection of Christ? They mocked him. Let this be in our hearts and minds from the beginning. The ministry of the gospel is something that is undertaken with great difficulty. Where there are a people who are religious... The difficulty only increases. Now listen, we don't live in India, in Iraq, in some of these other countries, but we live in a relatively religious community. I believe they still, though I'm questioning the validity of it, refer to this region as the Bible Belt. You know, I don't know... If they get the word Bible attached to that anymore with some of the things that are being taught. But nonetheless, it's a historically religious area. And the percentage of people that we talk to and say, are you a Christian? The percentage who would say yes to that are very high. Now, the distinctiveness of how they live their life compared to someone who's not a Christian, sometimes it's very hard to distinguish. Their real belief system that affects all of their actions and decisions and ambitions. Something seems amiss. But it is a difficult situation to deal with the religious. Sometimes when we deal with the religious, we have to go back a few steps in order to lay the groundwork more clearly before we move forward. In other words, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking we're all on the same page. Because you might ask someone, do you, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, yeah, Bible. I believe everything in the good book. All right, that's a hint that they don't quite esteem it as they should. But So you believe that God created 
the heavens and the earth, and he did so in six days and rested on the seventh. Well, science doesn't agree with that, so I'm not so sure about that. But didn't you just say you would believe that the Bible is the word of God? Well, yes. Do you believe that uh, faithful and earnest and devout people from all the different religions of the world, if they try really hard and are relatively moral, that they may yet be saved without a knowledge of Christ? Well, who can say? Uh, The Bible can say. And not only can it say, it actually does say. It tells us that there is no salvation in any other. And it is only in Jesus and in Jesus' name that we can draw near to the Father. And so, uh, so what's happening is out of one side of the mouth, uh, there's this tendency because of religiosity to affirm, yeah, Bible's the word of God, Christianity is the best religion and all. But then when you ask them details regarding the truth of what God's word says, they don't hold fast to that. Makes it very, very challenging. It says this, um, towards the, still in verse 18, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. This is, this is my frightening thought. What if when we preach the word of the Bible, it seems like a different divinity? than what they grew up with thinking the Christian God was. And we're going to consider those things, a few of those things in a moment. Secondly, not only is there a difficulty, a second challenge is that there is a tendency, not only in that time and that age, but in this time and this age, to, to long after novelty. I want something new. Tell me something new that I've never heard before. And so you start to come up with very interesting things. And we've talked about those kind of things. Here, you want to be blessed in your life. Keep repeating this verse from way back there in the Old Testament. Just repeat this multiple times every day and you'll be blessed. Draw yourself a circle, a prayer circle. And what is all this stuff? You know, and people hear it and they start to get pretty excited. But is it scriptural? And there's this tendency, well, well what's, what's the next Christian fad going to be? What's, I mean, maybe the next thing ought to be, listen, God told Moses, remove your shoes for you're on holy ground. He later said the same thing to Joshua. Maybe we ought to all start leaving our shoes outside when we come into church. Then we would be more in touch with the holy. I hope you, you sense I'm not really teaching that. I'm saying that facetiously. But there, it, there is the possibility people be like, well, we haven't done that. I wonder if it would work. And maybe they remove their shoes, curl their toes around the carpet fibers and think, this does feel especially religious. But is it real? No. Again, you, you, you can dim the lights, you know, you can have just the right piano music playing during a section of the prayer that has this ability to just move the emotions of people, doesn't it? People feel like, oh, I, I felt like I was in the presence of God. Did you feel like you were in the presence of God or were you just having an, a reaction 
to the music. And the soft music will also go, and, and, the, and then the tone of the prayer and the cadence, and everybody's drawn in, and maybe it goes to a whisper, and our hearts are just softened. Do you know what I'm saying? And, 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 the, and it's like, hold on a second. Does that make it real? But there is this, this push towards novelty, and, and this is what they're saying again. Bring us this new teaching, verse 19. Verse 20 says, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We want to hear something we've never heard before. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this clearly. There ought be nothing that is ever preached today that has not been preached in nearly 2,000 years of church history. I mean, if it's, this is the first time it's being preached, something's seriously off. It's a, it, but people want strange things. The end of verse 21 also says they would spend their time doing nothing except telling and hearing something new. And if you've ever seen yourself visit a Christian bookstore, you see that that's the way it is. You know, they've got those certain tables right out there at the front with strategically selected books from uniquely specific authors there that are meant to tantalize and draw and attract and it'd be interesting if, if somebody who worked in one of those stores packed a bunch of those up and moved them to the back and then took some solid teaching materials and moved it to the front table how happy that would make the management because there, there is this natural tendency for people to do that and, and it may be in us too so let's be sure that we resist and fight against that and thirdly, I want us to understand this. There is, a, there is a strong reality that we have to communicate. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the desire for the, the novelty, we focus on that which is absolute reality. And, and for him, his starting point was this. Let me tell you about God that you don't know. The unknown God. Here is a God you know nothing about. Let me tell you about him. And I, I love the way that it says that. Now, that's it's a pretty serious thing. He, he sees that altar to, uh, to the unknown God, which is interesting because you had certain gods who had specialties. Ares for Areopagus, also otherwise known as Mars which is why the King James says Mars Hill, although it's actually uh, Ares Pagas in the Greek. Uh, Areopagus, he was the god of war. You know, so you got gods of war, you got gods of love, you got gods of beauty, you got gods of different things. Uh, and, and the different gods want different gifts and want different tokens and different things. What does the unknown god want? How do you worship him? What sacrifice do you give him? What does he do for you? What's his skill set and specialty? And so the, the, the beautiful reality is by choosing that one, he, he kind of presents this, and this ought to be just pushed upon all mankind. All of your thoughts of God, your natural thoughts of God, they're wrong. 
They're deficient. They're inferior. God is bigger than that. God is more glorious than that. When you want to ask the question, what does God desire from us? You got to listen to what he says. When you ask the question, how should we worship God? You got to ask yourself, what does God say about how we should worship him? it, it, It takes things out of the realm of man and out of the realm of man's imagination and man's practice, and he says, there is an unknown God, and you don't know him, and you don't know what to do with him. But let me tell you about him. Let me tell you who he is. Now listen, there's no freedom in not knowing God. 2 Thessalonians gives this strong warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. When Jesus is coming again in the second coming, it speaks of it in verse 7. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. It's a very serious thing to not know God. There is a tendency even today for people to think, okay, over here are maybe the devout Christians. In the middle are the people who do not know God. And then over here are the people who reject God and worship false gods. There ain't no middle ground. There, There are those who are for God and those who are against. And vengeance comes even against those who do not know God. Not only on those who have rejected. There have been, in so many countries, people who generation after generation have born, lived, and died in their tribal circumstance having never heard the gospel. They die not knowing God. Now listen, even when God is declared to an unbeliever, it falls on deaf ears. It falls on a darkened and futile mind. So apart from God's divine grace, we don't hear and see and understand the gospel. So it's not as if they never had a chance. The reality is even everywhere we preach... Man dead in his sin doesn't have a chance because he's already dead. It is the grace of God that takes one who is dead in their trespasses and sin and makes them alive in Christ Jesus. God fulfills and carries out his sovereign purposes in bringing salvation to those that he has given in eternity past to the Son. But look further with me. Romans 1 reminds us of this in verse 20 and following. God and his divine attributes, his namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. Because the reality is this, and I've said it before, coming out of the ark, they knew but one God. He was the true God. And they could pass on to their children the truth of this God who brought 
judgment against the sin of the whole world and wiped them out and who delivered us and who we must live before in dependence and faith and obedience as he's told us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But even then, even if they were passing that message on, which it seems maybe they weren't, did they fill the earth or did they desire to lock down and build one city? And not be spread out and make a name for themselves rather than spread out in obedience to the one whose name is above every name. And so they are without excuse. Generations after generations have passed, but if you trace it back far enough, that message should have been passed on. Why wasn't it? For the same reason, it could be passed on now, and the fear you could try to pass it on to your children. But if the grace of God does not grip their hearts and lives, will they pass it on to their children? Will they pass it on to their children? And so we see the futility of men. The challenges in terms of rightness and wrongness will always come as it says in Matthew 22 verse 29. Jesus speaking to the Sadducees, he says this, you are wrong. Regarding true doctrine, regarding truth, regarding who God is, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, it warns them that they, in verse Isaiah 29, 13, it says, they draw near to me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And this is repeated again uh, in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7. They draw near to me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, their Fear of me, which is how they view me and how they worship me, is the commandment of men. That happened in Israel uh, back in the days that this was written in Isaiah 29, 13. This happened even among the leaders of spirituality in the days of Christ. And it continues to happen in every subsequent generation. Instead of committed to knowing the word of God, there ends up being, well, we've always done this. Well, these men established this. Look, every tradition among the Jews and every tradition among the church has those they esteem as good and godly men. But it still ends with this, they're men, which is why we examine the scriptures to see what is true. We don't want to be those who end up following commandments of men, because as Jesus goes on to say to those Sadducees and those Pharisees in those days, that worship is in vain, it's futile, it's empty. Now, moving, moving on, if you would with me. To verse 22 and 23. So that he comes now together into this situation filled with difficulty, this desire for novelty, and he's got to commit to speak reality, which is basically, he's going to even say it later. Look, uh, God overlooked these things in your ignorance. I will say this nobody ever likes to be told you're ignorant, which basically, more graciously, says, you don't know correctly. You know wrong. And the reality is it's never, I know right and you know wrong. It is, God is right. 
And so the question is, do we know what God has said or not? Everything can be carefully evaluated so that we know what is true. And I, we start here now with, a, with what I call, so he deals with two main points, the religious people, and secondly, he comes to them with a right proclamation. And I want, I want you to note this in the beginning of this right proclamation. This is how he begins. He stands there and says, men of Athens, I perceive that you're all very religious. So we've laid that background. They're religious people he's talking to. And then, he, then he, this, is, this is how he begins after saying, you have this unknown God. Let me tell you this God you don't know. Verse 24, the God who made the heavens and the, the earth or the world and everything in it. Again, I want, I want to make this uh, very simple and clear from, from the beginning. Here he is starting the gospel, and you know what he did not start with? God loves you. Jesus loves you. He didn't start with that. I'm not saying it has no place in our communique, but that's not the starting point. Want to say this even further, the starting point isn't even that you're a sinner. Because your sin must be seen against the righteousness of God. I want to remember that in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we know that we are not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. You know what the next verse says? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. I ask you this. In most modern presentations of the gospel, do, does anyone go away thinking God is righteous? Or do they go away thinking God is love. Not that God is love is false, but thinking love is the totality of God is false. He is far more than love. He is love. We say that it says God is love in 1 John, but before it ever got to that in 1 John chapter 1, it said God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Speaking of his perfections, his righteousness, his holiness, but somehow those things are left off. I've also noted this before, and I just it bears saying again, just in terms of cautiousness. Acts is the book of missions, correct? I mean, there we have the three missionary journeys of, of Paul with, with Barnabas and Silas. We have the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost part, part of the earth. We have those practical ministries of, of Peter and Paul as they take the gospel towards the ends of the earth. And I find it very interesting in the book that urges and, and gives example of the gospel being declared to Jews, the gospel being declared to Samaritans, the gospel being declared to Gentiles, the word love does not exist in the book of Acts. From beginning to end, the word love is not in the book of Acts. Now, 
I can see the principle of love in the book of Acts, in the proclamation of the forgiveness of sin that is in Christ, okay? So we can still see the principle of love at work, but it certainly, it certainly helps to reorganize how we think and how we communicate. The first thing that he begins with here is, listen, God is God. I mean, it seems like a weird thought, but he starts with the absolute, if it's a, if it's a word, the godness of God. A.W. Pink would say the godhood of God, that he alone created, that he alone controls, that he alone has authority and rights and privileges. He alone is God. It's, it, it doesn't start with you and, and your happiness and your sadness and your success or your failure, your desire for victory, your pursuit of peace, your hope of heaven. It doesn't start with you and your need. It starts with God who has no need. Which is, which is a, a, a shocking thing. And, and I want to just, for a moment, see that this principle is intentionally laid out for us. Go with me, if you would, uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, we have such a, a rich passage of Scripture there. And it says this, in verse 9, listen to chap Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Good news, here being stated in the Old Testament, as we move forward to the New Testament, what is good news? What's another word we use for good news? The gospel. This is an instruction for the declaration of the gospel, right? Get up, get on the mountain, put yourself at a place where maximum people can hear you. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. So twice it begins to speak about the good news, and it says, say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. That's the good news. There is a God. In the midst of all of the claims and all of the practices and all of the doctrines and all of the religions of men, behold your God. There is a distinct a unique, a living, true, and distinguishable God from all that is false. Behold Him. See Him. Grasp at Him. Lay hold of Him. I mean, that's the, we've got to get that. Because sometimes we get... Uh, otherwise, the hope of salvation becomes no judgment. The hope of salvation becomes... Heaven and happiness and delicious food and no more tears and all of those incidental things. 
The thing that is supposed to be most profound is God will make his dwelling place with man and we will behold his glory. I mean, that's astounding. This is, the, this is the starting point. And then, of course, it begins to unfold from there. If you're still in Isaiah 40, it says, Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules. Verse 11, He will tend His flock. He will gather His lambs. He will carry them and gently lead them. I mean, again, as it says, Behold your God, it speaks of God and His doing and His work and His power, and His person. The primary proclamation of the gospel is behold your God. And, listen, for us, we recognize this. We, within our humanity, and through the revelation of Scripture, how is it that we most clearly behold God? Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The scripture says he is the exact representation of the glory of God. When we, when we, through the scriptures, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we behold him in all of his power and all of his richness and all of his righteousness and all of his mercy and all of his justice. That's glorious. I mean, I just, when I look at that, I think, oh, that we would get that and not miss that sense. It, it goes on here to say this. Uh, I guess I, let me get back. Oh, we're still, if you're in Isaiah 40, stay there for just a moment. Again, it speaks of how absolutely powerful and immeasurable God is. It had said in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it. It says in verse 12 of, of Isaiah 40, who measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. Which the beauty of that, it speaks of not only God creating, but his creation isn't random. It's very specific. It's designed. It's measured. He's, he's engaged and involved in it, which is shocking because for the Greeks, that's not the way it works. For the Greeks, they had levels of gods. They had high gods and they had demi or what we might call semi-gods. And, and the great gods, they're not going to get their hands dirty touching material things. So they make lesser gods. Now those lesser gods ain't so great. So they might get their hands dirty messing with material things. And, and they get all of this. And into this... Paul, don't you realize when you, when you speak of one God and only one, you're offending all of those who believe in many gods. When you speak of this one God who is above all and he made everything, you're offending them by saying that the great God, high and holy, would be involved with material matter. Everything you're doing is absolutely poking their viewpoint. You're crushing their opinions. But I want you to note this. This is not up for discussion. These are, these are declared truths. And, and he's unpacking it. He, he even goes further. Uh, uh, verse 13 
Uh, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Or who did he consult? Who taught him the path of justice? In other words, listen. He made it all. He was intimately involved in all of it. And he does not need your help. You got nothing to contribute in terms of advice. You got no assistance. You got nothing. I mean, even now, for those of you who follow, it is just stunning to look, listen to the monthly developments in astronomy. They keep finding, oh, we found something that we never found before, and, and we're trying to explain how it seems like this little black hole swallowed this little black hole, and, and I thought, you know... It starts to sound like, you know, this little black hole and this little black hole went to market and this little black hole stayed home. It starts to sound like a bunch of little stories because it is. All they're looking at are, are little smudges, which it's not like even we think. It, it's not even like they're looking at a telescope and it zoomed in on something. The, at times, it's just the effect of particular radio waves being measured that are then transposed into visual images. It's, it's remarkably complex, but it's also remarkably ridiculous. You know, at times I, I think it's like, you know, I oft have to clean off these glasses because something gets on them. You know, wow, part of this word is missing. No, it's not. I got something on my eye, you know, on my glasses. Wow. Hey, wait a second. That spot's moving. Wow. It's not moving. What's happening? My viewpoint is messed up. And I'm looking through something. And I, and I haven't got the sense to realize what's going on. God help us. But see, in, in that, we can't answer all their questions. So we declare what is true. And what God has revealed. He is God he is creator of all. We're going to end up taking this up again next week. But I, uh, um, just, I'm still in that, uh, Isaiah 40. Stay there with me for just a moment. Because, because here's, here's what, what happens. People, it starts to, to think, look, maybe you feel lonely in this world. Maybe you feel like you're not valuable. You're not special. Well, you, you're valuable to God. Maybe nobody sees anything good in you. He sees something good in you. And, and, and there's this kind of talk that kind of puffs people up. Well, Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 40 verse 15, behold the nations, which is quite a few people, are like a drop from a bucket. So if you're carrying a bucket full of water, which I know you don't often do, but you can visualize it, and a drop falls out of that bucket, what do you then do? Fall to the floor broken and weeping because you lost a drop from the bucket, right? Or do you just carry on? It was just a drop. It's not going to affect my ability to use all that's in the bucket. Listen, not one nation, the nations, everyone. The whole thing is a drop in the bucket. Now, we don't want to take lightly, but we've got to understand God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And we remember this. In the, in the flood with Noah, there were people all over the world. 
And every single one of them, except for Noah, his wife, his children, and their wives, every single one of them was absolutely killed, gone. And he started again. And we've got to understand God would have every right to do that again. And when God did that, did he lose anything? Was he the loser that day? Or was he further establishing for us who he would bring to himself his righteousness, his justice, his judgments, that we would live in fear of him? We, t- we tend to take it lightly. Look what it goes on down, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. Now again, I, I just encourage you to always do a quick calculation. How much is nothing? All the nations are as a, nothing before him. They are accounted by him as what? Less than nothing. What? I mean, I understand what nothing is, but less than nothing. And so that's part of the beauty of it, that, that when I realize, even the scripture will say, Jacob, you worm, but God has taken you. Think, Jason, you worm, you nothing, you less than nothing, you know, formed of dirt, but God breathed life into, that God would, not because of anything in me, but because of his richness and mercy, and because of his loving kindness, he would take one who is utterly worthless. As it says in Romans chapter 9, we have all together become worthless, and he would make us his treasured possession. And it's not that I had to have some talent that he saw, nobody else saw, some value he saw that nobody else saw. Actually, we esteem one another far too highly because we look not at one another with the eyes of holiness. When we realize we deserve to be despised and destroyed, and yet God in love, not only for gave us, but sent his only son that he would bear, his treasured and beloved son, that he would bear the judgment due to me and you, so that we would be reconciled to him. Has to move us to stand amazed. So we're gonna we're gonna take this up again next week because I don't want to brush over these things. But what I'm but what I'm wanting you to see as we're beginning to unpack this as we move through Acts here, he starts this gospel presentation, and as he does starts it, he starts with simply this: the God who made the world and everything in it, and then the second statement, which we'll start to unpack a little bit more next week the Lord of heaven and earth. Starts out by simply saying, He is creator of all. And then moves on secondarily to say, He is ruler of all. Sovereign over all. 
I mean, it's, scary. It's, it's a sad thing when, when, you get, when someone gets to the end of their gospel presentation and says, will you make Jesus Lord of your life? Will you, make him, will you set him on the throne and remove yourself or will, are you going to stay on that throne? What we declare isn't, uh, are you going to make him Lord of your life? What we declare is, he is Lord. He is Lord. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is Lord. Acknowledge him as Lord. He demands and commands you to behold him for who he is and humble yourself before him in repentance. But we've made kind of, we've kind of turned it around. We start with men. And we end up kind of saying, what will you do with God? Instead of starting with God and saying, if you remain how you are, if you remain where you are, what will God do with you? Let's pray. Lord, as we um, work through these things, Lord, we are so thankful for your word. Because our tendency would be just to follow patterns and practices developed by men, sometimes pragmatically in ways that seem to uh, gain a hearing or, or even garner a, a momentary response more quickly. But Lord, we want to learn from you. We want to learn from your word. And we thank you for how remarkably powerful and remarkably consistent it is. And even as we begin to unpack it further this, this, in these coming weeks, we acknowledge today there is no God but you. Before you, there was none but you and nothing but you. And the heavens and earth and all that exists has come about through you and exists for you. And Lord, you are over all. You are in heaven. And you do as you please with all the hosts of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth and all deeps. You are supreme, sovereign, master, and ruler. God, may we see you for who you are. In Jesus' name.